All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Frustration among parents is constantly rising with respect to what is going on within their schools right now. And guess what? It should be, especially when it comes to the issue of critical race theory. Now, we have discussed this before, but we're going to hit this from a different angle today. So I want you to listen to some of the quotes that we're going to present to you from critical race theory advocates, because this is really important in order to combat the narrative that we are constantly being confronted with by the left. We discussed that today on Making the Argument with Nick Freitas, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, I want to start this off with a, a story from the General Assembly. And the reason why this story is important is because it illustrates, it's, it's going to be you're going to notice the way that someone is uh, kind of advocating for a particular view of the world, but they're doing it in somewhat of a subtle way. And this is often the time that we, this is often the way that we see CRT being pushed. And anytime we bring up some sort of, you know, reasonable critique of CRT, all of a sudden we're, we're accused of something that isn't true. So I want to just set the stage here. We're sitting in the General Assembly, so we're on the House floor. It's the first time we've actually been back to the House floor in over a year because of COVID. And we've just gone through a special session that was fairly controversial. And toward the end, one of my colleagues, a Democrat, gets up and he starts talking about disparities within society and disparities that uniquely affect the black community. And then he goes on to talk about how there's a lot of people that deny this reality. There's a lot of deniers out there and that we're essentially going to have to wake up to the truth in order to effectively solve the problem. And what's interesting about that is twofold. In one side, he's talking about disparities that exist. But on another side, he's offering a worldview which attempts to explain why those disparities exist. And he's essentially suggesting that if you don't share his worldview or if you don't think his worldview does the best job of explaining why certain disparities exist, then you're a denier, right? And this term denier is used very specifically because typically we associate that word denier. Now we, we associate with climate change, but before that it was with Holocaust deniers. Right. And, and again, when you use that term, it's to conjure up this image in your head that how could you be so unreasonable, racist, bigoted, mean spirited or ignorant to ever believe that the Holocaust didn't exist or that climate change isn't happening exactly the way that the left wants us to believe it's happening. And now, of course, that if you oppose uh, a particular theory about disparities, well, then it's not just that you have perhaps logical or empirical questions about that theory. No, no, no. It's because you're a denier. Right? You're a bad person. You're ignorant. Right? And the only way that you can be saved from your ignorance is that if you embrace not only the theory, but all the policy prescriptions that come along with it. Right? It's the only way that you can save yourself from essentially being categorized as ignorant, bigoted, racist, etc. Right? And this is a common tactic that is used with respect to the narrative surrounding critical race theory. So let's talk about some of the most common left-wing narratives that I've heard and that I've had directed against me whenever this topic of conversation comes up. So you probably all heard this one. CRT is just an academic theory about racism within power structures. All right. So this, this, um, this seeks to try to essentially say, what's the big deal, right? It's, it's just a theory and it's just a theory which explains certain, uh, you know, racist tendencies within certain power structures, which have effectively had negative impacts on, on certain aspects within society, right? And when you, when you caricature that, or when you, um, 
when, when you put that narrative forward, it gives the impression that, well, okay, yeah, what, what's wrong with studying power structures and what's wrong with coming to the conclusion that certain power structures have been rooted in racism, that that has disparate impact and, and uh, you know, negative effects and outcomes for certain populations, right? That seems perfectly reasonable, right? So that's why that narrative is used. Here's another one. If you oppose CRT, you're essentially denying that racism exists. So I, I've seen this before where someone says, well, I have a problem with this aspect of CRT or I have a problem with this quote from somebody that is an advocate of CRT and it's immediately coming out like, oh, so you're denying that slavery existed? Again, this is a logically fallacious argument, but it is a common one that's used and it's used in order to kind of put you on your, on your back heels and now you feel this obligation to defend yourself and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a racist. When in, in reality, they just used, you know, kind of a, a logical fallacy to knock you off your argument and to try to put themselves in a better light as you actually discuss this topic. Here's another one. If you oppose CRT, you do so because of your desire to protect your advantages within the existing power structures, all right? So now it's, it's calling into question your motives for questioning CRT, right? This is also known as kind of an ad hominem attack. So essentially you bring up some sort of issue that you have with CRT and there's an automatic assumption from advocates that, well, you're only saying that because you're a beneficiary of racist power structures and so you're looking for some sort of excuse to defend them, right? So again, logically fallacious argument. And then um, another one we hear as part of the narrative is being colorblind is not enough. You have to be proactive in your anti-racism. And this one is interesting because to some degree, you can be sympathetic to the idea of the, yeah, I don't want to just not be a racist. I, I want people to understand that, you know, A, I'm not a racist, and B, I think racism is abhorrent, right? So, so to some degree, this could be an argument over semantics, right? But the, the larger problem with this particular narrative is that even if you consider yourself to be anti-racist, which is to say that you're not only not a racist yourself, but you find, you know, racism to be abhorrent or evil or immoral, if you don't fit within their definition of what they've decided anti-racism consists of, well, then that's not good enough. So again, it, it's, not, it's not enough that you might even be anti-racist in any sort of like reasonable understanding of what that term can mean. They have a specific definition for the term. And if you disagree with that specific definition for the term, well, once again, you're a racist, right? So they're constantly engaging in this kind of ad hominem attack where every, every single time you question their premise, they turn it back around on you and say, well, the very fact that you would question the premise is evidence of the premise, which is classic begging the question fallacy, right? So these are some of the common narratives we see being used, but what exactly does CRT teach and what do they want? What do advocates of CRT really want? So let's go into some of those. Well, first of all, one a core tenet of CRT, and you, you see this you know, being pushed out by Robin DiAngelo, by Ibram X. Kendi and others, is this idea that white people are racist by nature or racist by environment, right? You've, you've seen Ibram X. Kendi actually going so far as to say that, you know, by, you know, a, a couple of months or years old, children start to display what he considers to be racist tendencies with respect to their social interaction. You've seen Robin DiAngelo essentially talk about, you know, how horrified she was when she understood the true abhorrent nature of her whiteness. And I, I mean, it's, it's incredible to read some of the things that she said about this, but it's this idea that white people are, are inherently racist um, and they have to do, uh, they have to go through the specific training in order to become an ally or anti-racist in order to sort of kind of rid themselves of these influences. And even when they've done that, you know, it, it's still skeptical of whether or not they've, they've really achieved, you know, that, that, you know, full state of anti-racist nirvana that, that they're supposed to be seeking. And another component that you see in this is the idea that white people can be racist, but minorities or anybody that falls within a quote, oppressor class cannot be racist. Right. And that, that's a really interesting dynamic. That's something that we've talked about before where, you know, if that's true, then and the only way that you can truly be racist is that if you have the economic, social or political power to carry out racist objectives, well, then that, that really causes a, a problem for, I think, all of us when it comes to defining racism, because now what you're essentially saying is that racism is in part defined by race, which traditionally we've always associated with a, a racist connotation. Right, and, and it creates some other logical inconsistency problems. So for instance, if the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, who we all acknowledge is racist, uh, went to a country that anti-racist concede is not a racist country or doesn't have the same racist power structures that they believe the United States has, 
well, okay, would he cease to be a racist because he no longer has any sort of, you know, social, political, or economic power to carry out his desires? Or would he still be a racist, he just want to be as effective, right? So that's, that's one of the problems with this idea that racism is tied to where you fall within the power structures as opposed to your own, you know, ideas, concepts, desires, or actions, right? All right, what's another one that, that we see? It's this idea that uh, disparities in society are best explained by racial discrimination. So, for instance, if you take a, a particular group of people, you're not supposed to look at that group as individuals. You're not supposed to necessarily look at individual choices that have been made by people within those groups. You're just supposed to look at group dynamics. And then if there's any sort of economic, social, or political disparity, right, then you have to come to the conclusion that that's a result of racist power structures that have provided advantage to one group and disadvantages to another group. And again, there's some problems with that that we're going to get into a little bit later in this episode. But essentially, that, that's, the general, that's the general concept. And you see that reflected in my colleague's speech on the House floor. It's this idea that here is a disparity between two groups within a particular category. Therefore, there must be an injustice which explains this particular disparity. Right? And that, that's a pretty bold assumption. All right, let's look at another one. The only way for us to overcome institutional racism is to institute policies that encourage equity. Now, you hear this term equity a lot, and here's what you need to understand, right? Um, a lot of times we, we hear the term equality, and we're now being told that equality or equality before the law is not sufficient. We need greater equity. And so the question is, is what do these two terms mean? Well, what's interesting about equality is equality doesn't have any inherent moral meaning. It just essentially means that two things are equal in some sort of capacity, right? They could be equal before the law. They could be equal in the sense that they have a similar economic status, political status, et cetera, right? That's no longer sufficient. Now we need to focus on equity. Well, equity does have an inherent moral meaning. Equity essentially means something that is fair or just. The problem is, is that when you use equity, not simply in its textbook definition, which is to say fair or just, but that you then suggest that in order to uh, achieve equity, you have to have certain equality of outcomes, that is a very different proposition, right? So it's, it's inappropriate to use equity as if it is synonymous with equality of outcomes or if it is automatically synonymous with the objectives of CRT. But that's commonly how it's used. And again, this is something of a uh, an, an engagement in sophistry. It's right a sophistic trick where it says that, well, I've defined equity. I, I'm using the word equity, which has a common definition, but when somebody uses it in, the, in terms of CRT or sometimes public policy, they have a completely different definition that they're using. And when you call them out on that, they immediately say, oh, you're against equity. No, those are two different things, right? All right, what's another one? We've talked about uh, oppressed persons cannot be racist due to power imbalances. We kind of discussed that already. All right, so these are some of the arguments that, that they use. And again, one of the most common ones is this idea that racist power structures have, have kind of the best explanatory power for why there might be disparities within groups. It automatically assumes that disparities are naturally a result of unjust policies or unjust power structures. And so therefore that has to be confronted. Okay, fine. Now we know what they're, they're saying. But what sort of remedies are they actually proposing to effectively address this? All right, so let, let's, let's read directly from them. Again, I don't want to give a caricature of their argument. I, I want to talk about some of the things that some of the most preeminent advocates of critical race theory are actually suggesting. So a UCLA law professor and critical race theorist Cheryl Harris has proposed suspending private property rights, seizing land and wealth, and redistributing them among racial lines. All right, so this is one of the remedies that she offers so, right, again, it starts with CRT. That is the lens for which she is viewing the world and trying to explain these disparities. And the remedy that she suggests is suspending private property rights, seizing land and wealth, and redistributing them along racial lines. All right. Critical race advocate uh, Ibram X. Kendi is one of the most popular ones right now. He's very in demand among um, corporate institutions, among teachers' unions to come and actually train uh, teachers on anti racism and critical race theory. Uh, in fact, he directs the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University, and he has proposed the creation of a federal department of anti-racism. Now, he wants this department to be independent. What that essentially means is, is that it's, it's not um, at the behest of the elected branches of government. Um, so essentially, it's not as if we elect people to this. They would essentially be appointed, and then they would be completely independent, so they wouldn't have electoral oversight or representative oversight of, those, of that particular agency. And he wants this agency of government to have the power to nullify, veto, or abolish any law at any level of government 
and curtail the speech of political leaders and others deemed insufficiently anti-racist. So I want you to, I want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine a, a federal department of anti-racism that would have little to no oversight, be comprised of appointees that would have the kind of power to nullify law, right? Or curtail the speech of political leaders that they deem insufficiently anti-racist. I would say that's pretty terrifying, you know, somewhat authoritarian. But again, this is one of the things that Ibram X. Kendi suggests is a way to combat racism. Um, here's, another, here's another example. One practical result, this is a statement, one practical result of the creation of such a department would be the overthrow of capitalism since, according to Kendi, the origins of capitalism cannot be separated from the origins of racism. The life of racism cannot be separated from the life of capitalism and vice versa. So again, now we start to see that when they're, they're talking about remedies for, you know, to, to make us more anti-racist as a society, they honestly believe that capitalism is inextricably tied to racism. And this kind of begs the question, right? Like, if you don't want a capitalist system, well, what sort of system do you propose? And then can you please explain why the system that you're proposing is less racist or more anti-racist than a capitalist system? And, th and this is where it's important as you're discussing this to actually understand what these words mean, right? Because capitalism or free market economics is quite simply the private ownership of the means of production and distribution, right? Where exchange takes place voluntarily, which is to say that you as a private citizen can own a company or own capital equipment or can own, um, you know, a trucking company, whatever it is, right? You can, you can own the very tools that we use to produce goods and services and to distribute goods and services, but you cannot compel by force someone to do business with you, right? So capitalism or free markets is really based upon this idea of voluntarism, right? And the protection of property rights. But we've already seen in two different explanations here by critical race theory advocates is that they believe that property rights and uh, capitalism are inextricably tied to white supremacy and racism. And so they have to be overthrown, right? So again, that's one of the remedies that they're suggesting. Um, let's look at another one. Poverty, in the words of race theorist K. Ann Taylor, is a structural, embedded, in institutionalized, and systematic requirement to maintain capitalism's efficacy. It is an ongoing outcome of hegemony, patriarchy, and the capitalist economic structure. So once again, this is not simply a theory that is purporting to try to explain racist power structures. They've already identified them and, and their solution is to get rid of them in order to create a more racist uh, society. And, and you're going to see a lot, of, a lot of antipathy within critical race theory advocates against capitalism, free markets, private property rights, but it doesn't end there, right? Next one. Achievement-based education is a historical artifact of racism and eugenics. This was coming uh, from an article from Wayne uh, Owl, Hiding Behind High Stakes Testing, Meritocracy, Objectivity, and Equality in U.S. Education. That was the uh, part of the uh, International Education Journal. Another one. Work requirements and entry-level employment are an extension of capitalist oppression. And that came from Wendy M. Limbert and Heather E. Bullock in their paper, Playing the Fool, U.S. Welfare Policy from a Critical Race Perspective, All right? And then finally, we have the idea that the nuclear family, right? So the idea of mom, dad, children, the nuclear family is a vestige of white supremacy. And this came from White Supremacy and the Web of Family Science, Implications of the Missing Spider in the Journal of Family Theory and Review. All right, so again, this is, this is a sampling of various things that prominent CRT advocates and academics have put forward as these are the things that we have to address, significantly reform, or abolish and get rid of in order to become a truly anti-racist society. So we already start to see that this is, this is not some sort of you know, neutral theory about understanding power structures or how racism can potentially influence them. Right, they not only have a, a theory or a worldview from which to lend or for which to view all of these power structures, but they have a, a very definitive set of policy objectives that they want to use the force of government to implement. And among these are suspension of property rights, overthrow of capitalism as a predominant economic structure. The um, basically overthrow of the nuclear family is the is the primary instrument that within society for raising children, for having and raising children. 
right? And then the idea that the education system should not focus on, on meritocracy, but that that's a vestige of white supremacy. And you'll notice that every time they call something a vestige of white supremacy or of racism, what they're essentially doing is they're equating these two things so that now when you defend capitalism or when you defend the nuclear family or when you defend you know, educational standards, uh, that are traditionally associated with meritocracy, now all of a sudden they've put you in a position where you're defending racism or white supremacy, right? And because nobody wants to do that, and in fact, this is, this, is actually, this is actually really interesting. I want you to think about this. Part of the reason I believe that CRT advocates so closely align the economic, educational, or family structures that they don't like with white supremacy or racism is because ultimately they know that people don't want to be associated with racism. They know that the vast, vast, vast majority of people don't want to be associated with racism. Now, here's my question. If America was truly the racist hellscape they are making it out to be, why would they use that argument? Wouldn't that encourage people to do the very opposite of what they wanted? If, if, if people were so inherently racist and so married to these, these structures, why would they care if you called them a racist? Why would they care if you call them a white supremacist, right? But the very fact that they know the people they're talking to don't want to be associated with those entities, organizations, or ideas is in some small way, I'm not saying this is comprehensive, but in some small way, an admission on their part that America is, again, not the hellish landscape that they're constantly trying to tell us it is. So what does this tell us? What, what do all these quotes, what do all these statements really tell us about their actual objectives, right, and the nature of their theory? Well, essentially, CRT advocates have little to no faith in American political and legal institutions. It even goes beyond that. They also don't have any real faith on notions of critical thinking, the scientific method, linear thinking, um, um, empiricism, etc. So they either want to get rid of these institutions and, and, and manners of thinking and manners of analysis, or they want to alter them to the degree that we wouldn't even recognize them. All right, I, I want you to imagine a legal structure in the United States where Congress passes a law, the president signs it into law, and then this federal department of anti-racism comes in and nullifies it because they've decided it's not anti-racism enough, right? You might still have a Congress, you might still have a pres uh, president, but at some point we don't even recognize the, the structure for how a bill becomes a law or for how that law is, is implemented and executed within society. So here's what we need to ask ourselves. If we don't want that, right? If, if we have a problem with the central premise of CRT, if we have a problem with the policy prescriptions, then how do we effectively combat this, right? Because it, it's very easy to sit back and say, this is wrong, this is stupid, this is actually you know, racism you know, repackaged. It's, it's easy to say all of that. But the bottom line is, is that we're starting to see this become far more prevalent with respect to how corporations uh, you know, teach their employees, how teachers union teach their students, how the federal government, from everyone from the FBI to the military to the Department of Agriculture, in, in, instruct their employees. And, and what's really pernicious when it comes to the school system is a lot of times parents will get out there and say, well, I don't want CRT taught in my school. Okay, I completely understand that, but what you need to understand is the left is immediately going to come back and say, CRT isn't being taught in your school. We're just requiring teachers to go through equity training as part of their licensure. Well, that's far more pernicious than actually just teaching a class on CRT. If you were to go into history class and say, hey, here's three or four different theories that attempt to explain power structures. All right, parents might still have some issues with public school systems being you know, required to teach that, but at least then you're actually getting multiple perspectives on a particular issue. Instead, what is happening is your teacher now has the, the person that is responsible for educating your child has to go to equity training as, as a condition to either get or renew their license. And within that equity training, they are taught that CRT is not merely a theory, but it is the appropriate way to view reality. So now when your math teacher or your history teacher or your English teacher or your science teacher goes back to their classroom, there's this expectation that they're supposed to implement what they've taught as part of their equity training, which is heavily influenced by critical race theory, into every subject they teach that is far more pernicious and subversive than just having a class where you, where you present critical race theory along with other theories with respect to power structures, the civil rights movement, economics, et cetera. Right, so it is really important for us to be equipped to make the best arguments possible 
Because ultimately, you, you can advocate for banning CRT, but the practical reality, the, the intellectual reality is you can't ban an idea. You have to defeat an idea in the marketplace or the battleground of ideas. And the way you defeat a bad idea is with a good one. The way you defeat a bad idea is by you show the underlying presuppositions. You show how they're empirically, log empirically false, logically inconsistent, right? How, how, they, how they, they don't actually do a good job of explaining what they purport to explain. And then you also show how the policy pre uh, prescriptions that they advocate for don't actually achieve the end state that they claim to want. Right? And the end state for CRT is to create an anti-racist society. Right? But we've already seen what the prescriptions are. So let's, let's, go, through, let's go through and let's talk about this. Um, because again, you should leave this podcast confident in your ability to be able to address some of the most common narratives and arguments coming from CRT advocates and being able to respond in a way that you feel confident in and that you feel confident sharing with others. Right, especially your kids, because if your kids are still going to public school, this is this is getting into their curriculum. It is getting into their classroom one way or another. And when they come home and you have that 30, 45 minutes around the dinner table, this is your chance to properly equip them, right, to be able to go into that classroom and spot the problems. All right, so let, let's go through some of this. One of the first things that I, I think we should address is this idea that CRT even though they call it critical race theory, it actually opposes the traditional ideas of what we have with respect to critical thought. So when we talk about critical thinking, we're usually you know, referencing things like the laws of logic, right? the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction, the idea that the two things cannot be both true and false in the same sense, or they can be both true at the same time if they contradict one another. Right? This is a basic building block of logic. And one of the things that you see within critical race theory advocates and the way that they defend it is that when you bring up some sort of empirical problem with their theory, right? So for instance, you, you point out that, well, I don't think that you're doing a good job of explaining why disparities exist within particular groups. They come back and they, do they respond by attacking your empirical argument or do they come back and say, well, you're only trying to protect the racist power structure because you benefit from it. Or you're just dealing with right fragility. Right, so in that very moment, what they're doing is they're engaging in ad hominem attack. They're not attacking your argument based off of empirical grounds or better data or a better understanding of the data that you've presented. Instead, they're attacking you. You're a bad person, and so we don't have to consider your empirical argument. Right, and you, you see this done a lot by Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kendi, and other advocates of critical race theory. They don't attack your argument. They attack you. That's ad hominem attack. Now, how do they get around this? Well, they simply say that logic or, or the laws of logic or empiricism or rational thought or linear thinking, these are vestiges of white supremacy. Well, okay, this begs the question, how am I supposed to determine whether or not what you are saying effectively explains reality? How am I supposed to then determine whether or not the policy prescriptions will address the problems that you've presented? How am I supposed to do that if I can't use critical thinking? And their answer is, is, oh, well, you just have to become an anti-racist. Well, okay, well, that seems reasonable. What's an anti-racist? Well, an anti-racist is when you elevate narrative, right? And you, and you elevate the, the shared experiences and stories of the oppressed over your oppressor, you know, proclivity with this idea of strict logic or rationale or the scientific method. And, and if you think I'm being hyperbolic right here, I encourage you to go and look at what was placed up at the Museum of African American History as part of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., where they actually talked about ideas like critical thinking, linear thinking, the scientific method as being indicators of whiteness. And, quite, and what we should find most offensive by that is the fact that logic, empiricism, these are not white ideas. They're not even Western ideas. They're just ideas. And, and what you see is the world around Somebody can, somebody can rail against the law of non-contradiction -contradic all they want, but they all live their lives in accordance with the law of non-contradiction. Don't believe me? The moment someone says the law of non-contradiction shouldn't apply, you look at them and say, yes, it should. And the moment they say, no, it shouldn't, what have they just done? 
They've appealed to the law of non-contradiction. When they say it shouldn't apply and, you, and when you respond to them and you say, well, when you say it shouldn't apply, what I hear you say is that it should apply. And the moment they say, well, no, that's wrong. That's not what I said. You can say, oh, but the law of non-contradiction doesn't apply. So the fact that you noticed a contradiction when, when I repeated your words back to you in a way that you didn't agree with means that you're appealing to the law of non-contradiction in order to defend your statement, the law of non-contradiction doesn't exist or isn't relevant. It is a self-defeating argument. That's why I say it's not white, it's not Western, it's just reality. And, and to tell an entire generation of kids that the law of non-contradiction or logic is somehow white, which is, which is to presume that if you engage in it, you're either guilty of white supremacy or racism, or to engage in it is to betray your particular ethnic roots because that's a white idea or a Western idea is not only wrong and horribly insulting, it, it is also literally training kids to not apply the basic building blocks of critical thought, which is absolutely critical for them to be able to graduate out of school and become a success socially and economically. So we should be horribly offended by the fact that they're, they're trying to throw out logic in order to defend their theory, which apparently doesn't stand up to logic or empirical inquiry. All right, let's look at another one here. It's also worth pointing out because one of the, one of the, primary, one of the primary things that, that advocates of CRT says is that it has um, a high degree of explanatory power for disparities among racial groups. So it's worth pointing out that far from being just a theory that analyzes power structures, CRT is a complex and multifaceted worldview which suggests that disparities between groups are best explained by racial injustice inherent in our system. The question is, is, is that true? Because whenever you're making that sort of claim, then presumably the rest of us can come in and say, okay, I'm willing to give your theory an audience. I'm willing to consider it, but I, I need to see the empirical facts that you are using in order to back up this very, very bold claim, right? And, and I'm going to go, rather than pointing out all the different problems with this or, or going to all the various statistics that would question this concept. I want to introduce you to someone that I've talked about before on this podcast, but I cannot emphasize enough how important this person has been to my own thinking and how much I highly recommend him for anybody that wants to have a better understanding of political theory, economics, and the whole idea of discrimination and disparities, right? So there's a book by Thomas Sowell, and it is conveniently titled Discrimination and Disparities. And before I get into what the book talks about, I need to give you a little bit of background on Thomas Sowell. So Thomas Sowell is not some, you know, privileged white elitist in academia, right? Thomas Sowell grew up in poverty in um, the South during the era of Jim Crow. His parents died when he was young. He moved up to New York, uh, lived with his, I believe it was his grandparents, um, dropped out of high school, all right, but worked very, very hard. Uh, both trying to support himself and academically, right? One, one of the things he talks about that was the most impactful to him was getting a library card and essentially going to the library and just spending hours like reading. Now, what's interesting is he dropped out of high school, but he actually got into Harvard, right? So he was studying at Harvard and, and he studied at Harvard for a while, got a degree. Then he went to the Chicago School of Economics. Anybody that knows Chicago School, Milton Friedman taught there. So Thomas Sowell right, was, was being educated by Milton Friedman in economics. But here's the crazy part. Thomas Sowell was an avowed Marxist. And when Thomas Sowell got done with all of Milton Friedman's class, he was still an avowed Marxist. So what actually changed his mind on this? Well, he actually ended up working for the government, the federal government in Puerto Rico for a summer. And they were trying to do, they were trying to figure out the best way to help people. They were trying to figure out things about minimum wage laws, welfare programs, and whatnot. And he came up with a very good empirical test to determine whether or not the welfare programs were actually achieving the desired results. And what he found was, is that the federal agency that was responsible for delivering welfare dollars had no interest in determining whether or not it was achieving the desired results because it was such a huge part of their budget that to, for, for any sort of empirical evidence to essentially call into question what they were doing would potentially lead to massive budget cuts for them. And that's where he first learned that governments 
and, and government agencies and the people within those agencies also have their own interests, which don't necessarily correspond with the stated intentions for why the agency exists. And he started to reevaluate the way he thought about economics, the way he thought about political and social theory, and he ended up becoming a big free market advocate and a huge advocate for individual liberty. And so one of the things that he thought was really important for himself was to look at all of the different welfare programs, all the different anti-discrimination um, or discriminatory policies and to see what sort of impact that they had. And here's some of the things that he came up with. And there's a statement that he, that he makes that I think is, is just very common sense, but it's the sort of statement if you made it today, you would probably be accused of, of being a racist. And here's what he said. Disparities can also reflect the plain fact that success in many kinds of endeavors depends upon prerequisites peculiar to each endeavor. And relatively small differences in meeting those prerequisites can mean a very large difference in outcomes. What does he mean by this? He's essentially saying that you can take a, a whole group of people, and he actually references a, a study that was done where somebody took uh, the, the top 1,500 or 1,500 people with an IQ of 140 or higher. And they actually, this study followed them for 50 years. And what they found is, is within, this, within this group, so you have this common element, they're all brilliant. And what they found was, is there was an incredibly different outcomes for people within this group, even though presumably you would have thought they would have been closer based off of, you know, where, where they stood in their overall brilliance. And he started to dig into the numbers and he found that one of the key characteristics that determined uh, whether or not someone was successful, regardless of how brilliant they were, was what their family background was. It was one of the most critical aspects of determining success within this group of 1,500 people that they had been following for 50 years. And so he, he came to some conclusions for this. One of the conclusions he came to is that it is really critical to track individuals, not just groups that there, there's, a, there's a, a wide array of different things that can essentially uh, skew your conclusions if you're just looking at group dynamics and you're not looking at individual dynamics. He doesn't suggest that you shouldn't look at groups. He just says that you have to look at individuals within those groups, not just the group as a whole, if you really want to come to you know, in, in, you know, empirically rigorous decisions about why some people succeed and why some people failed. And here's some of the things that he, he, he brought up that I think was, was really interesting. Because a lot of CRT advocates will come to the idea that, okay, this group is doing worse than this group, therefore it must be as a result of racist institutions and racist policies. And here's one of the conclusions that Thomas Sowell came to that I think is very interesting. He didn't deny that government policy could, um, didn't hurt certain groups. In fact, Thomas Sowell went so far as to say that there was a lot of government policy that did hurt minority groups and specifically hurt minority groups. The interesting thing was, it wasn't the anti-racist policies, or it wasn't, it, uh, the, while the racist policies hurt people, it was also a lot of the, quote, anti-racist policies or affirmative action policies, which he also discovered hurt minority groups. And so what's very important for that conclusion is that what Thomas Sowell was essentially saying is that, yes, racist policies, by definition, hurt minority groups, not to mention the fact they're evil and immoral and should be abolished. But what he was also coming to the conclusion was is that he looked at economic numbers, as he looked at social numbers among the black family going beyond, going before the 1960s when a lot of things like the Great Society and the, and the welfare programs went into place. Here's what he found, is that civil rights legislation that removed Jim Crow laws, removed, those all had a positive impact just like you would expect both for moral, economic, social, and political reasons, right? But a lot of the other programs within the great society, some of the welfare programs that were instituted, actually can be traced back as having adverse or negative effects. And one of the things that he points to, and this is really interesting, he goes, the black poverty rate declined from 87% in 1940 to 47% in 1960 before great society programs went into place. After the war of poverty went into effect, the decline was far more modest than it had been. Not to mention the fact that if you look at different minority groups within the United States, actually, I take that back. If you look at all groups within the United States, before a lot of these anti-poverty programs went into effect, what you saw was that very, very, at all the groups, very, very few groups were, were having children out of wedlock or raising them in single parent homes. 
after the implementation of the Great Society programs, you see a, an explosion among all racial demographics except for Asian communities with respect to out-of-wedlock births. Now, why is this important? Well, first of all, it's important because if you look at institutions, even like the Brookings Institute, which is a left-of-center think tank, they will tell you that there's essentially three things that you need to do in order to escape poverty. Right? If you do these three things, you have less than a 4% chance of remaining in poverty throughout your life. And those three things are get a job and keep a job. Right? Just, just be a good employee or, or, or be a responsible worker. Right? Graduate high school. Right? Get a basic level of education which allows you to go out and compete within the marketplace. And the third one was, and, and this kind of goes hand in hand, it was the idea of don't be you know, engaging in activity to have children before you're ready to have children. Essentially, if you get married first and you have a stable home and then you start having children, the chances of you being in poverty, the chances of you, um, you know, getting into the criminal justice system, all that goes down exponentially. So those are the three things that you had to do. So here's the question. Why was it that pretty much all demographics had fairly low um, rates of children being born out of wedlock before the Great Society? Now, you can certainly point to certain cultural trends within, you know, the you know, free love and, and kind of like glorifying promiscuity um, within the 1960s. That certainly had a, a component to it. But the other thing that happened within our welfare programs is that we were passing programs that sought to help the poor. And what it essentially did was incentivized divorce and having kids out of wedlock, because if you did, you could get more money for children that you were having, but they would cut your benefits if there was actually, another, uh, there was actually a man in the house. And so it, it's, it's pretty hard to, to not be able to empirically say, okay, look, we weren't doing this policy until here. We implemented this policy and we see a huge explosion in this, right? And, and for those that would say, well, that's a causation correlation fallacy. No, when you are directly incentivizing a particular type of behavior and you get more of that behavior, it is reasonable to assume that causation and correlation is present within that dynamic, right? So Thomas Sowell points out that you're not wrong that government policies have actually hurt minority communities, but you might be wrong with respect to which policies have done some of the most damage, right? Again, none of us are surprised that Jim Crow, slavery, and all of those evil, abhorrent policies hurt minority communities. But I think a lot of people would be surprised on how some of the welfare programs or, or quote, anti-discrimination programs uh, or discriminatory programs have actually hurt the very communities that they were designed to support. What is another example of a government policy that has actually hurt minority communities? Well, Thomas Sowell puts a lot of blame on minimum wage laws. And again, this seems counterintuitive. You would think to yourself, well, wait a second. If we're saying that certain minority populations are poorer than you know, majority populations, well, then wouldn't we want there to be minimum wage laws in place in order to help them raise their standard of living? And what Thomas Sowell points out is, is that when you actually, when you arbitrarily, when you allow politicians to arbor, arbitrarily set the price of labor, right, and set up a price floor, what you're actually doing is you're putting people that need that initial job experience or that are, are that first rung on the economic ladder and need to get that first job in order to become successful and to move on and move up that economic ladder, when you price them out of the market, right, you, you actually do them a disservice. And I actually had to point this out to a room full of students once that less than 4% of the labor force actually makes minimum wage. And the vast majority of them are either really, really young and they're starting off their economic life or they're elderly and they're just supplementing other income, right? So when you, when you essentially make it more difficult to hire that group that is, that is younger, you, you are perverting their entire economic progress for the rest of their life. And Thomas Sowell points this out. Thomas Sowell also points out that a lot of people who now use minimum wage as an anti-racist policy, if you look at some of the minimum wage or collective bargaining laws and you look at the justification that was used to put them into effect in the first place, what you find is, is there was a lot of racist tendencies. You actually had some people in the North that were attempting to pass minimum wage or collective bargaining laws because white businesses were lobbying them because they were tired of black businesses coming in and essentially eating their lunch, doing a good job at a lower price, and they couldn't get the same contracts, so they asked for the government to come in and help on their behalf. That's a part of the minimum wage and collective bargaining arguments that you never hear about today, but it is absolutely verifiable. And Thomas Sowell brings that up. Another thing that he talks about is just the overall problem with redistribution. When you create a society where essentially you are 
um, punishing people, the more successful that they are, you essentially punish their incomes at higher degrees. And then you redistribute it to somebody else. You run the risk. Your desire might be to help, but you run the risk of actually incentivizing destructive behavior. Because again, if the way that I get the money is by doing things that organizations, even like the Brookings Institute, have acknowledged are more likely to keep you in poverty or to put you in jail, and the government's incentivizing those programs, then are they really doing you a favor? Yes, in that, in that one instance, they might be making you a little bit more comfortable in poverty, but are they really doing you a favor to help you escape that and to be able to be financially independent? And that answer there is, I think, no, they're not. So as we, as we look at kind of our comprehensive argument, right, what, what is that, what is kind of that short statement that we can make to someone as we're talking about CRT in order to kind of deflate this idea that we're just, you know, racist or we're protecting our, our white supremacy or patriarch or things like that. I think the first thing that we need to do is you, you point out your overall concern with CRT is certainly not the analysis of power structures or how they can be influenced by racism. But what your real concern is, is that you too want to combat racism, right? You agree it's not good enough to simply be neutral on the issue of racism, that you too want to be proactive in, in tearing down any attempt by an individual or an organization to be racist against another human being because we feel that it is inherently immoral, right? That there is no instance where being racism can be a, a moral thing, to being racist can be a moral thing. And so your question for CRT advocates is very simple. It's one, explain to me in, in the totality what it is that you really believe. Ask questions and be prepared to go ahead and give off some of these quotes that I've mentioned here. Because what I found is for a lot of people that are kind of superficially supporting CRT because they don't want to be considered a racist, they have no idea of the larger objectives with CRT advocates. They have no clue that CR prominent CRT advocates want to overthrow capitalism or think that free markets is synonymous with white supremacy. They have no clue that rigorous academic tests for educational institutions is considered synonymous with white supremacy, right? They have no clue that they want to suspend private property rights and engage in massive redistribution along racial lines, right? They don't know that that's, they don't know that those are objectives of CRT advocates. And so when you ask them, what do you think CRT is? That gives you that opportunity to come in and like, we know I, I read this quote by Ibram X. Kendi, or I read this quote from Robin DiAngelo, and she said this, do, do you agree with that? Is that what you, is that what you want to achieve? Do you, do you think that the way that we combat racism is by getting rid of capitalism? Start asking those questions, open them up within their own presuppositions about what they think they know about critical race theory. Now, if they're a diehard activist, chances are you're not going to change their mind in this and they're just going to resort back to saying, well, you're just a racist or you're part of the patriarchy or you're a white supremacist, right? I wouldn't waste a lot of time with people like that unless you've got other people that are watching the discussion and you're giving out sound, logical, empirical you're asking the right sorts of questions that open them up within their presuppositions and they're responding to you in that way that can actually be very effective at turning off the very people that that CRT advocate is trying to influence, right? So asking those important questions, but for that, for that coworker, for that friend of yours that, that honestly it has good intentions, they just want to combat racism and they're looking for the best way to do it, this is the part where you first expose them to the, the underlying ideas, which are rooted in Marxism within the Frankfurt School. We've talked about that in another podcast. I'm not going to get into today, but it is rooted in that idea. When you start to actually expose them to the, both the ideas and the policy prescriptions that are laying out in order to combat racism, that's where you can start to get them to really, really open up their eyes to what CRT is all about and that it is not this simple, benign way to combat racism. And then the second component that you come around with, right? Because you don't want to just talk about what's wrong with their theory. You want to talk about what's right within our own worldview, which does value individual liberty and equality before the law and the ability for each human being to be able to pursue their own interests. And what you say in that point is you say, you know, I think the best way to combat racism is to cause it to fail in the marketplace of ideas. Because one of the things that we know about things like the free market is that the free market tends to punish racism. And the way we know this is true is because a lot of the people, a lot of business owners that wanted to run their businesses in a racist fashion, right? What they did was they tried to get the government to pass laws 
to protect them from competition against either minority-owned businesses or to protect them from competition against those businesses which did not want to engage in racism, which wanted to employ people, promote people, and serve people through their business. Right? It was the racist businesses that ran to government in order to get more power to try to thwart their competition. Right? We want to talk about this idea of equality before the law as being critical. This idea that you would throw out equality before the law and that you would essentially make the law nothing more than a hodgepodge of different policies to try to advantage or disadvantage people based off of race is counterproductive to the overall goal. Yet that is exactly what CRT advocates are advocating for. Another component that we really want to, to hit on here is this idea of, you know, while, while group identities may be useful on some level, the moment that we insist on judging people by the group, instead of looking at people as being their own unique individual, that they have their own creativity, talents, that they have their own objectives for their life, and that they should be free to pursue the outcomes that they want, not based off of what some academic says they should want, based off of a group identity or group dynamic, but operating within a free environment to be able to make their choices, to define what happiness looks like for them, instead of having it foisted upon them by somebody else. Right? I would say that's an anti-racist objective. So these are just some of the ways that we can frame the conversation in a way that is set up to be productive and not deteriorate in nothing more than a shouting match where you find yourself constantly having to defend yourself by saying, no, I'm, I'm not a racist. I share the objectives. I share my, your abhorrence for racism, right? We, we want to get away from that. Ask the right questions, open them up within their presuppositions, reveal to them how much they don't know about what CRT advocates actually say about their theory and say about the policy prescriptions they want, and then come in and demonstrate how a society which respects individual liberty, property rights, and allows people to go out there and work together in order to achieve their objectives for their life is the, one of the best ways we can possibly combat racism, along with teaching people the very simple principle that each human being is beautifully and wonderfully created, and as such, has that right to be able to be the author of their own story, and how dare anyone else come in and tell them that they can't be the author of their own story because they have to submit to a particular way of looking at the world which diminishes their own value as an individual. Thank you again for joining us on Making the Argument. I hope you found this helpful. Please leave us some information within the comments about what you thought about what we're talking about. Make sure that you like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Also, go in there. Leave us a five-star review. Give us some comments. Check us out on YouTube if you'd actually like to see my ugly mug in person instead of just listening to this on your way home from work. Once again, thank you for joining us. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.